Blessed final Sunday before Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday is practically here. And being it that it is Sunday and being that I am still recovering from the, whatever it was that I am all my family are dealing with, we're going to have a less news emphasis stream today and have a couple of statements that are from uh, various different uh, prelates in the church, one being Cardinal Burke. His was a homily he gave a few days ago on uh, the Feast of St. Agatha. We're going to go to that. It's very Sunday appropriate. Another will be from somebody that many of you will find ironic to pair with Cardinal Burke, given his uh, disdain for them, but a statement they put out about fiducia supplicants several days ago. So that'd be the most newsworthy real item. Plus we'll go over one slight news item, which is uh, if you know what the rave in the nave was, (laughs) what has been going on in the UK, it'll put uh, all this ecumenical dialogue into a whole new, unfortunate sulfur scented light. So some stuff to pray on for today, but it's still lighter in the news. I have a bigger news item I'm already sort of paying attention to for tomorrow morning, Monday morning's live stream. So please tune into that when it comes available. So good morning to everybody in the live chat. If there's any issues here with today's audio or anything, please let me know. Everybody's giving their uh, home remedies for dealing with seasonal afflictions in the live chat, which is good. Yes, remember your electrolytes. It's important if you uh, come down with something. Anyway, let's go right to our main story today, which comes from Cardinal Raymond Leo Burke. Gave this on the homily of the paternal feast of St. Agatha, which was about a week ago. And he gave this to the church of St. Agatha of the Goths. I've got to say, uh, we Catholics have some of the best naming conventions for our, for, for our oldest parishes and uh, basilicas and things, don't we? All right, so here is um, Cardinal Burke's short homily. It does give a couple, he does talk a little bit in it about some things peculiar to that parish. We'll cover that too, just in the interest of having the whole thing. So here's his homily. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Today we rejoice in the victory of God's grace over the forces of evil in the life of a young girl, St. Agatha of Catania, in the year of the Lord 251. From a worldly perspective, no one, especially a young girl, could withstand the oppression of the civil authorities who wanted to rob St. Agatha of her virginity, of her total espousal to Christ. And no one, especially a young girl, could withstand the cruel afflictions of the same authorities who wanted to rob Agatha of her martyrdom, of her faithful love of Christ, her bridegroom, even unto death. St. Agatha was united to Christ, her bridegroom, by the divine love celebrated in the Cantal of Canticles. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. St. Agatha understood the truth that betraying divine love for any earthly end is pure folly. The Holy Spirit dwelling within her young soul gave St. Agatha a power far greater than any authority of this world can exercise. Indeed, as St. Paul teaches us, God chooses for his own those whom the world considers foolish and weak to give witness that he alone is our wisdom and strength. God the Father has made his incarnate Son alone our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Only Our only boast in life, as St. Agatha testified by her virginity and by her martyrdom, is our Lord, our life in him in the church. Blessed Cardinal Alphonse Schuster, in his commentary on today's feast, writes in conclusion, It's not the martyr's own strength, but grace which enables him to overcome the torments. Therefore the angels exult, not because of his sufferings alone, but because through them God is glorified. And the innocent victim who was outlawed in this life acquires the right of citizenship in the heavenly Jerusalem. 
The civil authorities robbed St. Agatha of her earthly life, but they could not rob her of Christ's life in her, of her virginal espousal of him, and of her faithful love of him until the end. She is forever with Christ, King of heaven and of earth. She enjoys forever the victory of her purity and of her martyrdom. We are not only deeply grateful for the victory of St. Agatha in itself, but for the power of her intercession on our behalf, on behalf of the Universal Church, and as Blessed Ildefonse Schuster declared, Yet under the influence of the Holy Ghost, St. Agatha fearlessly faces the cruel and foul malice of her persecutors, and crowned with the double crown of virginity and martyrdom, she flies to her heavenly spouse, and becomes henceforth protectress of her native city and of the whole church. How often St. Agatha has been invoked for protection against the eruptions of Mount Etna and Catania, her native city, and against natural disasters in every part of the world. How much we should invoke her intercession for the grace to follow our Lord on the way of the cross. Trust his promise to us. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he will save it. How often today worldly powers ask us to put our trust in them by abandoning the way of the cross, the way which our Lord teaches us and on which he leads us in the church, the way of pure and selfless love. How often worldly powers urge us to folly of seeking our happiness in the world and thereby losing our eternal happiness in heaven. The same Holy Spirit dwelling in the soul of St. Agatha dwells in our souls for the glory of God and the salvation of the world. How much this, how often the spirit of the world would have us think that the way of the cross is too much for us, too much for any human being. But St. Agatha gives witness to the truth that even the poorest and the weakest of us can be strong in Christ because the Holy Spirit, divine grace, dwells within our souls. If only we cooperate with divine grace, we can follow Christ and win with Christ the victory over sin, the victory of eternal life. Following the example of St. Agatha and invoking the help of her prayers, let us set out again on the way of the cross, our only hope, our sure hope of eternal life. May all who venerate the memory of St. Agatha today, the day of her birth into heaven, draw ever closer to her and thus draw ever closer to Christ, her bridegroom, our divine Savior. May this church of St. Agatha of the Goths be a spiritual home in which we meet St. Agatha, virgin and martyr, and learn from her the wisdom of losing our lives for the sake of Christ and his saving work. In a special way today, I thank again all those who made possible the restoration of the facade, the courtyard, the pipe organ, and the sanctuary floor of this historic church. Since our joyous celebration of the restoration on February 5th of last year, the work on the courtyard has been brought to a conclusion with a system of illumination. May all these works be for our edification, inspiring us to imitate St. Agatha by embracing ever more faithfully and generously our Lord and his way of the cross. One in heart with the Immaculate Heart of the Virgin Mother of God, let us lift up our hearts to the glorious pierced heart of Jesus, open for us in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. May we lose our hearts in the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and thus may our hearts ever rest in the Sacred Heart of Jesus, now on earth and at the end of our earthly pilgrimage, eternally in the Kingdom of Heaven. Heart of Jesus, from whose fullness we have all received, have mercy on us. Mary Immaculate, Virgin of Virgins and Queen of Martyrs, pray for us. St. Joseph, Guardian of Virgins and Protector of the Church, pray for us. St. Agatha, Virgin and Martyr, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And that was Cardinal Burke's homily for the Feast of St. Agatha, which was last Monday. And I brought that to you today, I think, because it does actually, the subject of her does pair nicely with the, ironically, the third thing we're going to cover here, um, which is uh, a statement on fiducia supplicants from the SSPX uh, Superior General. And you might find that ironic because Cardinal Burke's not exactly a fan of the SSPX. He, if among the better bishops, seems to be the only one who believes in being schism, which is odd. But Fiducia Supplicans is still kind of in the news, even though it's beginning to fade a little bit. 
and Saint Agatha is a good saint to enter for whose intercession we should pray for in times when purity are is is under assault even in the church when the very concept of the most basic concepts of fidelity to the church and to our lord are are really under scrutiny in the church and open to revision she is a very good saint and martyr for that so i don't think i don't think it was necessarily a coincidence that he gave that homily when he did i mean yes he probably had been asked to give that months in advance but there were some digs in towards that document in there that were very subtle the giving into the values of the world stuff that you heard there towards the beginning i'm going to check the uh live chat here because there are yes colleen i i am feeling better i'm still not i'm still not better better but i'm definitely feeling better um yesterday was uh, very congested um thank you teresa uh thank you for the prayers too appreciated all right so let's go on it is burke just ignoring rome lately um cardinal burke doesn't often issue statements about things going on it's not a lately thing he often just doesn't give these statements and if he does they're usually at hom homilies at masses or at conferences or things and rarely printed things that he does of all the better bishops the only one he who speaks even less often than he does is cardinal walter Brandmuller, and that's because Brandmuller is in his late 80s or early 90s at this point and retired but cardinal burke is of the better bishops the one who does he probably speaks the least often it's a competition between him and cardinal robert Seurat on that and i think Seurat speaks more often than he does what is the purpose of subtle messages that, that's a subject for debate i think there are people I mean, there are people who will pick up on subtle messages and others, but I, I do sometimes think being more blunt is, is these days is needed because unfortunately the fi fine art of being subtle you know, sending a message subtly has lost on people judging for how often I have to explain what the Moloch ritual is whenever I invoke that. Um, just wondering in your opinion, is it possible parents can consecrate their children who are minors to the blessed mother and have to, I haven't done that to my kids. Um, I'd have to check. I would check with your, a traditional priest on that first. Yes. Parents have authority over children and like as the father, as a father, I do the external blessing over my children, but it's, that's the only one you can do it to as a parent. But I would check with a traditional priest on that. Honestly. Uh, I doubt I can get an interview with anybody in the, uh, in the hierarchy. Except maybe Schneider, maybe. All right, so let's go over to the actual one news item of the day. This is an interesting piece. This comes from the uh, Catholic Herald from a few, like a few months ago, a couple months ago, but this weekend. The um, because so this is back from when they announced it, but I think this is actually relevant right now because it's going on. So back in December. Uh, the Catholic Herald published this piece by Gavin Ashenden called Rave in the Nave at Canterbury. The Church of England doesn't know what its cathedrals are for. Can we have them back? This is an interesting thing to, to, to look at right now because um, there was an, an Anglican bishop at who met with uh, Francis and his council of cardinals to talk about being more inclusive and welcoming to the ladies in the church. Uh, word is that uh, Francis is very seriously considering uh, a for the issue of deaconettes 
So get ready for that. I'll have more on that for you tomorrow. But um, this was published in December because that's when they announced it. Well, it's the uh, the rave that they're having happened in the last couple of days. So let's just go over this. Um, a lot of this is, you know, this uh, Catholic talking about uh, Canterbury Cathedral, which, if you don't know, the Canterbury Cathedral is in the hands of the Anglicans now, was a Catholic cathedral for a very long time. Um, but they've, uh, the, the, the Church of England has this rather odd habit of using their cathedrals and using other really, really iconic places now for secular purposes in addition to any religious purpose they think they have. So, you know, Canterbury Cathedral still used for Anglican worship services, whatever they call them, but they also use them for parties, secular parties. So we'll just go jump down to here. He says, uh, today he goes over the long history of the cathedral, right? Then he says, but today the cathedral needs money. The new dean, the very Reverend Dr. David Monteith, says he wants to reach out to younger people, where we've heard that before, as well as finding ways of raising the large sums the cathedral requires to survive. You're in that position because uh, the Church of England is on life support at this point. He has scratched his head and decided that the stones under his feet might be put to a different use than worship and pilgrimage. He's opting instead for dancing, accompanied by by uh, booze and rave music. He wants to draw the young into the cathedral, them and their money. The dean knows what he wants to do with their money, but he's not so clear about what, what he wants them to get out of their entrance into the sacred space. The rave in the nave, which happened or is ongoing right now in the Church of England, as it shall probably be known, will take place over two nights in February. It will be strictly an 18 and 18 plus event featuring plenty of alcohol and the music of the 1990s, Britney Spears, Spice Girls, Eminem, and some group called the Venga Boys. Don't know who that one is. Maybe that's an English thing. Dr. Monteith has not been clear about how he intends to preserve the sacrality of the place while flogging the ravers with booze and entertainment in the form of throbbing noise, uh, very fleshly lyrics, and self-expressed uh, movement, we'll say. Indeed, he doesn't seem overly bothered by the gap between the holiness of the sacred space he was appointed to care for and the drunken Epicurean pursuit of mind-numbing, hyper-fleshly pleasure. Unsurprisingly, this has drawn some criticism. No kidding. Kajetan Skaronsky, a doctor in Sussex, has written an excoriating article in the European Conservative, reminding his readers of the sum of the lyrics that entertain silent disco dancers through their high-tech headphones. So what's happening is they're having what they call a, a silent dance party, where if you were walking in, you wouldn't hear anything except the shuffling of feet, because everybody there would have these big headphones on listening to the music while they dance. Sounds like an odd, uh, an odd choice for me for uh, how to have a party, let alone in a cathedral. But, uh, you know, I'm not going to read to you some of these lyrics, but uh, they're pretty, uh, they're pretty, pretty out there. Um, but he said, but, you know, he goes over some of these and says, this stuff will be beamed into the headphones of the people participating while they contemplate the ancient architecture and 14 centuries of Christian history they have stumbled into. A life-changing experience, which the Dean must be sure will yield many Damascene conversions. Some might well accuse Dr. Monteith of severe paucity of judgment and wonder how he came to occupy such an important position. But perhaps the situation says more about the English Anglicanism than anything personally about the current Dean of Canterbury. Entertainment seems to become, if not a religion for Anglican cathedral deans, then at least an alternative to practicing a religion. These are the folks 
that Francis is invited to the to the Vatican to offer their parody of of the Mass on the altars at Vatic at the Vatican. This is the group that he participated in their parody of Vespers with at the Vatican. This is the group whose bishopettes, quote unquote bishops, he has had over to talk to his council of cardinals on the issue of making the ladies feel more included in the life of the church. You see the problem here. They have taken their medieval Catholic shrines and not content or aware of the presence of God, they have abandoned a pursuit of the sacred for a push for populist secular entertainment. We could take that line right there, the one I've highlighted here. And we could say this of Francis, and we could say this of the cardinals advising him, including those he has appointed the dicastery. We could say the following here. I'm going to rephrase this for them. They have taken their ancient Catholic teachings and not content or aware of the presence of God. They have abandoned a pursuit of the sacred for a push for worldly secular values. Where's the lie? That is what they have done. Here's what the, here's what they have done to their cathedrals though, that used to be Catholic. This has taken the form of indoor golf courses, helter-skelters, and the installation of gin, of gin distilleries in buildings confiscated by the state from the Catholic communities that conceived them and built them for very different purposes. Well-meaning people hoping to save the cathedral from impending desecration have started a petition begging the Archbishop of Canterbury to intervene. It didn't work. There, those same people were outside of the event holding signs. Sadly, because of how the Church of England does... Episcopacy, Justin Welby, has neither power nor influence within the church in which he sits on the throne of St. Augustine, because it's uh, he's a, an appointee by the state. It's not a new trope, but on the other hand, it's not mu been much bettered. Those of us who have been pilgrims there and for whom love, longing, and prayer were birthed and nurtured there are tempted to offer a different solution. Perhaps if the Church of England doesn't know what cathedrals are for anymore, they might consider returning them to their original owners, who still do. In some cases, I'm adding that. Because that is what something you might be aware of that had been happening in the ch in uh, the Church of England this past weekend. Please interview Charles Murr. Uh, I probably couldn't get him either. And uh, my source, I have a source about that whole subject. He talked to Taylor Marshall, who says that Father Murr was very wrong on that, and that if you want to know really what happened with Pope John Paul I, go read Vatican, Malachi Martin's book, Vatican, which goes into that whole thing. And it's his account from Alakai Martin is very, very different. Had a long conversation with somebody who would be in the know on that. So, um, why not do Christian artists at least? Um, I still, I mean, it's a Protestant building technically at this point. So uh, it would be, I still wouldn't do that though. If a if the church owned like an auditorium or something that was on the grounds, that would be better, but I don't know. I don't like, for the most part, secular, uh, sec like Christian versions of secular music anyway. But Mary Woolley says, churches are for the worship of God, not for concerts and partying. Faith is lacking. Yeah, right. And I mean, look at the state of the Anglican communion right now. This is why it boggles the mind that this is who the church, the Catholic church is looking to for inspiration on the, or on the limits of ordination and how to govern the church and synodality and all this other stuff. It's very strange. All right, let's go to the other one. 
uh thought a little barrier of separation between cardinal burke and this story would be good because cardinal burke is once again not a fan of the sspx and this story came out about three weeks ago and i've been meaning to cover this but i was waiting for us i think a sunday was probably better um but also being being uh still recovering from whatever it was that got myself and my whole family down provides an ample opportunity for uh, for this on a sunday for a lighter stream so the SSPX has a bite hold back on this. They say Fiducius Supplicants, a synodal church listening to the world. It's from a conference given by Don David Palirani. I'm probably mispronouncing it. Superior General of the Society of St. Pius X, given in a month ago, almost a day. So here we go. We're going to just go over this. I may not go over the whole thing because it's not super short, but uh, you you get the uh, the sentiment here when he says it's a synodal church listening to the world. Let me remind you before we go into this that in the announcement for the necessity, the alleged necessity of the Second Vatican non-binding pastoral council, the uh, Pope John the Twenty-Third talked about how we needed to open the windows of the church to the world to let some fresh air in, meaning we needed to learn a few things from the world. How'd that go? Right. Think about that for a second, because he's definitely. I think he's making that sort of implication here. So let's go. This synodal church is a church that claims to be listening to everybody with its feet firmly planted in the feelings of the people of God. However, in reality, it's simply utopian and millenarian. It has come to me to offer a synthesis and to explain the society's position in relation to the different realities promoted by the, quote, synodal church. First of all, we need to try to put some order into all the different elements concerning this synodal church, in particular, the recent document, Fiducia Supplicants, which has already generated a considerable amount of commentary. This event needs to be put into its true context. How did we get to this? What does it all mean? The role of the Society of St. Pius X cannot be limited to immediate and instinctive reactions. It is up to us to deepen as much as possible our understanding of what is at stake in this text. If our analysis lacks depths, we run the risk of falling into the same trap as others. We've reduced the problem of fiducia supplicants to a personal eccentricity of Pope Francis and whose extravagancies cannot be explained. Other reactions to fiducia supplicants have reduced the problem of these blessings to a question of opportunity, and that this initiative would be inappropriate in certain cultural contexts, particularly in Africa. In truth, the reality is rather more complex. Nevertheless, all these different reactions are certainly welcomed. They are good in the fact that they show that there is still a capacity to react. However, the society needs to go deeper. So therefore, let us start by taking a step back from all the media furor. Pontificate that corresponds to the expectations of the modern world. Strictly speaking, Fiducia Supplicants is not a synodal document, but one's produced by the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith and signed by Pope himself. Nevertheless, it is a document that responds to what was raised on many occasions in the preparations for the Synod. It is therefore a response to a current and synodal expectation. This synodal church, quote-unquote, that we are trying to define, is a church that listens to all people, including those in the peripheries and the grassroots, absolutely everybody without exception. It is a church that listens to the world itself, is therefore a church with a new sensitivity and a new willingness to go out and to meet the world. In reality, the current pontificate corresponds more and more perfectly to the expectations and demands of the modern world, and more specifically of the world of politics, in the widest sense of the term. In fact, on the one hand, this pontificate corresponds to a political vision that is shared universally in today's world, and on the other hand, it has also adapted itself to the political methods that seek to create a new social organization, and which, it must be acknowledged, have already largely triumphed. So why is the presence of the church as representative so important in the reorganization of the world? 
This is not the first time we have seen this way of doing things. When new principles are introduced or when a new society is being built and reorganized, it is necessary for a religious institution to make these principles sacred. This is quite clear and corresponds to a necessity rooted in the hearts of men. Deep down, man will always have a religious dimension. He needs to believe in something and therefore needs to make sacred even something that is basically not sacred at all. It is a need that is very often unconscious. However, it is rooted in human nature. Why is this so? Because man was created for God, and not even a revolution can change human nature. Sooner or later, the sacred must oppose itself, so as to give a transcendent dimension to what we believe in and to the principles that we consider to be fundamental. You can see this quite clearly in history. Ancient civilizations sacralized everything that was important to them. They sacralized power, strength, fire, the earth, fertility, etc. Much closer to our times, the French Revolution, which was a liberal revolution, did the same thing. Since it was fundamentally secular, it implemented a total rejection of the past and a desacralization of everything that was part of the old system, including religion. Yet at the same time, it insisted on raising human reason up to the level of the sacred, as it were. Another example would be the Declaration of Human Rights. Declarations are made every day, especially in this day and age. In the best of cases, most declarations are remembered for a few weeks, but they are certainly not kept forever. However, in contrast, the Declaration of Human Rights seems to have left a permanent mark on history. And why is that? Because the Declaration of Human Rights is not just a simple declaration. It is a fully-fledged creed. It was written with the solemnity of a profession of faith. It responds to the religious need to render these new principles and these new dogmas sacred, on which modern contemporary society was to be built. There are also many other examples we could use. So what is the Pope doing? What is the church doing? Unfortunately, they are moving in the same direction. They are rendering sacred things that are fundamental in the eyes of today's world. Here are just a few examples. We all know that ecology is preached and taught by the Holy Father. This new ecological theology goes beyond simple considerations of expediency that are purely linked to a moment in history. It is a new morality preached to everyone. It is a changing morality proposed even to atheists. And why is this so? Because we must all respect this common home that we call creation, which came from the hands of God, but which in itself, regardless of how we conceive it and how we may call it, is the common home of all men. This implies a religious character, a religious stamp, if you like, embossed on a proclamation and an urgent demand of today's political world. And so the church has intervened to give it her religious stamp, which, as we have seen, corresponds to a very real human need. Another example would be the insistence on the need to dismantle hierarchy. For them, there is a need to move away from a hierarchical vision of society and from a hierarchical vision of the church. They now advocate a society where power is no longer hierarchical. Power is distributed and redistributed. Hence the necessity to share authority, to fight against clericalism, and to promote the emancipation of women. This is a subject that has been on the agenda for some time now. Today, the church wants women to have their own place, even within the hierarchical structure of its government. All this is presented to counter-traditional patriarchy, which is considered to be the systemic and institutionalized cause of a series of, of misuses of power throughout history. Understandably, among them, these modern values that are being proposed to all, and in particular the church that can make them sacred, is the James Martin program, as, is, as it is one of these values. We are therefore witnessing the implementation of a synodal sensibility that must inevitably conform to the sensibility of current times, including those values just mentioned. The Pope is rendering sacred things that are fundamental in the eyes of today's world. Fiducia supplicants responds to a political need. Meanwhile, there's also another aspect that deserves our attention. Their church has realized that for various historic reasons, it has lost credibility, and therefore it has lost influence in the world. In this scenario, it believes that it needs to preach what is up to date in order to remain credible. Unfortunately, this is an inevitable outcome. Having lost sight of the supernatural dimension of its mission in the world, the church begins to have a complex 
with the world because it has lost its prestige and credibility. Therefore, it looks for other ways to try to remain credible. Thus, as it wants to be understood by the world, the church starts to speak the same language as the world. However, this is a terrible illusion because the church was not made for that. It is obvious that the church was never made to limit itself to a horizontal perspective. Here, we can already draw an initial conclusion that will help us to put fiducia supplicants in its proper context. Why did this have to happen? Well, paradoxically, the secular world still needs the church and this religious stamp that only the church can give. And the church, which has lost its credibility, paradoxically, still needs the world. This dual need has created a real symbiosis, a synergy on this political terrain. Fiducia supplicants were response to a political need of the moment. No, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I will have a link to that in, a, in show notes just a few minutes after we're done here on this live stream. But there's no lie in any of that. This is a it's a political document responding to a political quote need, and it's doing so by trying to speak the language of the world, because the modernists don't realize they destroyed the credibility of the church by allowing James Martin types into the into the hierarchy and into the the priesthood, and then lo and behold, James Martin types do what James Martin types do, and guess what ended up happening? Destroying the in addition to all the evil they did mccarrick stuff countless cases of it and try to hide all the mccarrick stuff they also destroyed the church's credibility and the cost of souls just by that alone is staggering so they're trying to get the credibility back by giving the world everything it wants <sighs> evelyn says why change with the world instead of teach the world where it is going wrong that should be our stance always R right except that's a Catholic way of thinking, and modernists are, these they're not just material heretics, they're formal heretics, which means that, strictly speaking, they're not even Catholic. They don't think like us. That's why I have the full text of, I'm working through the full text for, on this channel for Pope St. Pius X's landmark encyclical, Pascendi Dominici Gregis, every other Saturday. Yesterday's Pius X uh, video was the most recent episode of that. You see, going through it slowly, in just eight to 10 minute segments of it, you see how their logic works and what they do to the church. And it's a, it's their program and what they've done to the church by through a century and a half or two centuries of attempting to undermine the faith, eventually finding themselves in the, uh, in the halls of power in the hierarchy has had catastrophic consequences. We're living through it now. All right, folks. Seems like congestion is coming back, which is fine. I expected that, honestly. So we're going to uh, wrap this up, but I do have, wonder if there are any other questions in the live chat at, at this moment. So please get your questions in if you have any. Um, uh, do, do we? There is the uh, 54 day Novita of Novitas that's ongoing. Uh, it's a rosary a day, basically for certain specific intentions. Uh, I'm using the format that Father Heilman is doing, so you can unite. We can participate in that as well as uh, what Joe McLean and I are promoting, which is for the conversion of the wolves, wolves and shepherd's clothing in the hierarchy. So I'll put a link to that in my show notes at returntotradition.org to Father Heilman's thing here just in a few minutes. Um, Damien is doing 15 decades every day. It's doable. I'll remind people that once upon a time, five decades a day of the 15, only doing five was considered the children's rosary. And now that's like the normal one. We should all strive to be uh, to have to be as good at least as our ancestors a century ago were doing. It's amazing how thanks how, how lax we've all gotten. 
without even realizing it. But yes, you can uh, make this make this Lent count, folks. Always assume that on Ash Wednesday that this might be your last Lent. Always assume that. You never know. And try to make the Lent count. All right. So thank you, folks, very much for tuning in. And as always, pray for the church and enjoy your Mass today if you can. And if you're going to go watch that big sports thing today, don't make an idol out of it. But, you know, I'm not a guy who's going to tell you that you're bad for watching sports either so just uh if you're going to watch it though watch it with the eyes of the faith and see if you see the diabolical there okay it may it, it may open your eyes a bit anyway pray for the church i'm anthony stein ave maria